You're listening to Death of the Reader, Flex and Herds here for your Murder Mystery World Tour, and we are here in our second week discussing Agatha Christie's The ABC Murders. Mm. Herds is in the hot seat. We are Woo. reading up to and including the Doncaster murder this week on the show, because of course, Herds, there are four murders now in this novel. Apparently, although the most recent one seems to have hit the wrong target, we've jumped straight over D and gone to E. In Doncaster? It's also not a guy whose name is, like, alliterative like the no, other three. No, no, very, very odd. It's it's almost like the killer's getting sloppy or something. Or maybe has been sloppy in the past and we just didn't notice it. Interesting. Either case, yeah, we're continuing this alphabetical series of, of mishaps. So at the end of last week's stretch of chapters, we just found out about the murder of Sir Carmichael Clark, a wealthy millionaire. Uh-huh. We start this week off meeting his family, mm-hmm. his old and dying mother. We meet Thora Gray, the house help, and his brother, Franklin Clark, who yes. puts together a plucky band of misfits to try and help Poirot solve this so case. here's the thing. I love this plot beat. We're going to get into Franklin over there in a minute. <laughs> but I love that what we're doing here, because we've gone to a lot of pains to kind of set this mystery up as not your typical mystery, rather than dealing with a house full of people that know each other. We're dealing with an, an entirely open mystery that occurs across many different towns. But what's really lovely is that Christie, through Franklin's ambitions, has actually created the house of suspects after the murders, right? Like we've gathered all of these acquaintances and loved ones, all characters we've said at one time or another, you know, could they be the killer of their respective friend or relation? But no, it couldn't be them, but we've put them all in a room together, right? We got this situation where the people trying to solve the crime are in fact our pool of suspects, even though that's not how they've been introduced to us in the classic Christie way. I think it's also interesting too, because that also means that whilst they're trying to help Poirot, they still have this sort of adversarial relationship with him where he still has to suspect them because they are the suspects in his case, but they're also his best shot at solving it, which isn't like too different to the way a country house murder mystery usually works but sort of decontextualizing it by putting it out in the open world where these murders are happening all over the UK gives it a very different vibe. Yeah, I like the subversion of, of, as I said, the the normal introduction of these characters. I like that there's now questions of, when we're we're thinking about, you know, which characters are paired up with whom when they go on investigation, and thinking about who's most vulnerable in the group, who's least vulnerable. And there's no, like strong family ties in the background. There's less history between the characters, which means that there is room for more speculation, I suppose. And it also means that Poirot is trying to make uh, analysis based off of the impressions that these characters have of each other. And maybe even if any of the characters seem to know more about each other than they claim to, which is also kind of fun, right? Well, yeah, because we have this interesting sequence where Betty's boyfriend... Donald Fraser comes in and he's like, Poirot, I've had this terrible dream where I imagined that I was there at the scene of the crime. It's wild. It's wild. I mean, look, it was foreshadowed. Look, last week we talked about this, how like the two sisters are supposed to look nothing alike. And yet that's foreshadowing for, you know, what if one sister was killed? Instead of the other sister. You feel like the other sister would have told you that by yeah, now I if it was like, the case, considering like she's part of up. the, the, what do they call them? The, 
The Special Legion? That's the right, Legion the of- Legion. The other thing that we start to get into is we hear from Lady Clark mm-hmm. that uh, as she, she rambles, was, as she was resting, recovering from her, her ailments or, or passing away from them, whatever the case may end up being, she says, oh, goodness, no, that Thora Gray, she was lying about not having met anyone that day. She saw this this man at the gates. And suddenly we open a whole new rabbit hole that brings us into the world of Alexander Bonaparte Cust, who we'd met in a chapter last week. Mr. ABC himself, who's been marking things on lists and checking it twice, he's apparently silk stocking salesman. Yeah. And he happens to be on the scene for the most recent murder, for the Doncaster Well, yeah, because we, we found a pair of new silk stockings. At, at, at every um, crime scene, I think. At every crime apparently. scene. Well, no, except the Clark one, where he oh. was only seen at the gate. Apparently, this Alexander character, the end of the second last chapter that we've read, he has blood on his clothes. He seems to be, in the way that the narrative is presenting him, which I don't trust, but it's kind of interesting, he's a frazzled war veteran who sells silk stockings and then stabs people subconsciously. That seems to be kind of the narrative. We have this scene where he's like sat down opposite a dude reading the newspaper. And he can't hold a conversation. Yeah, and but the dude's like, oh man, aren't these murders really awful? And the sort of vibe is that Alexander Bonaparte Custer's in this moment realizing, hang on a minute, that sounds <laughs> like me. Yeah. Well, it's, I mean- I like that there's a lot of different ways you could read that scene because he says, you know, aren't these murders horrible? And then Alexander says, well, are they like, are they any worse than the wars? Like there's bad stuff going on all the time. Yeah. So there's definitely room to interpret him as like a, a, a conscientious objector of some sort if he is the killer. But yeah, he, he does lots of suspicious things and all but tells his maid that he's going off to kill somebody. So he's definitely not the murderer. Outrageous. <laughs> How how could you suggest, Hearns, that the person whose name matches up with the the letters and every detail seems to line up and (laughs) quite obviously is the the man we need by the end of this stretch of chapters? Yeah, I mean, this is obviously we're setting up like, oh, we're going to go find Alexander and he's going to give us the last piece of the puzzle. And if Poirot wasn't there, they would have thrown him in the slammer. Like, that's that's where we're going with this, which is, it's a fun, again, a fun trope with our our bumbling policeman crime. Mm. who Franklin doesn't like very much, incidentally. I just wanted to kind of That's remind so us. That's so strange. I don't know. He doesn't think that Crone's really up to the task. He thinks only Poirot can solve these mysteries. Of course, the other big set piece that we have, which is really interesting, but in some ways glazed over, mm. is that the final murder here takes place- At a theater. Well, it takes place at a theater while everyone else has been called out to like a horse race. <laughs> You're right. It is a little bizarre, isn't it, that they set up the horse race as the set piece, but then don't actually use the horse race? Yeah, like, the the obvious mystery side to this is that the killer has tried to distract them all by setting it in this very obvious location where he could blend in and be anyone in the crowd, but of course he's not in the crowd. To be fair, like, the crowds in general, like, traveling to and from the race would camouflage their movements, but... I do have to wonder, because I haven't seen any television adaptations, whether they actually would use the horse races rather than the theater. Although I suppose, I mean, you can get spectacle out of either of those things, right? Depending on how you play it. Yeah, it's just very interesting because there's there's like narrative weight provided with the Legion, like preparing to go and do all of this. Mm -hmm. And then the rug is pulled out from under them. And they do nothing. They apparently are completely ineffective. Sort of weirdly satisfying in construction, the way that Christie is just like, no, it didn't pay off. It didn't work. I actually- 
I kind of enjoyed the the audacity with which she played yeah. that particular hand. Especially because like the rising action of the moment is like in the scene where the where the kill occurs is that there's this this woman on stage who's talking about a sparrow. I don't look. She's <laughs> open for a sparrow falls, whatever it is. There's this thematic idea going through it as well, where a lot of characters have kind of pointed out that Poirot isn't really doing that much. There's this scene where Mary Drower, I think, stands up and says, well, Poirot, you've kind of just said absolutely nothing in this entire scene where you've been interrogating us. And the the start of the next chapter is Poirot going, well, Mm. and she was absolutely right. (laughs) Yeah, because he's poking and prodding them and thinking which is as well a thematic through line with Hastings because Hastings wants action. I like that it's a novel where everybody's trying to rush the detective, but also the killer is not in a hurry. We literally are sitting in our homes waiting for the next sort of chess move from the killer, which is kind of the romanticized edge of a fictional murder mystery as well, isn't it? Yeah, exactly. It's sort of playing a little bit on this idea that like, well, if we all just stay in the one room, then the killer can't do anything. I mean, are we wrong? Unless they bring the dynamite. (laughs) Um, Anyway. Unless the killer is all of us. Oh no, then we're in trouble. The killer was the friends we made along the way. I don't think I've seen a novel with that twist before, unfortunately. No, certainly never spoiled it. Never. (laughs) not on purpose. I like that in the theater sequence, there is actually a lot that happens under the nose of so many people because someone is stabbed the wrong person, it seems, but still someone is stabbed. And then the knife is planted on Alexander and the murderer disappears. And from the point of view that we have, we have the point of view of some, some bystander and they see one person get up and leave. I guess we'll have to interrogate this a bit more in the back half of the show herds. You're right. I am going to ask you what this Alexander Bonaparte Cust's involvement is with all of this oh, other goodness. than being framed. I'm, yeah, well, I guess we'll figure that one out, won't we? <laughs> I guess we will. This is Death of the Reader, your murder mystery world tour. Herds is terrified and we are reading Agatha Christie's ABC Murders up to and including the Doncaster Murders, chapter 27. Stick around here on 2SER 107.3. We'll be back with more in just a second. You're listening to Death of the Reader, Flex and Herds here for your Murder Mystery World Tour. Last year on the show, we covered Sophie Hanna's Silent Night, her latest Hercule Poirot continuation novel. And whilst we were working on those episodes, Sophie was neck deep in the release of the film adaptation of her musical, The Mr. E of Mr. E. Now, that the stars align as we talk Poirot again. We're delighted to be joined by the Sophie Hanna. Sophie, welcome to the show. It's wonderful to have you on Death of the Reader. It's lovely to be here. I, I love a good sidekick. Uh, Edward Catchpole is is your lens into the Poirot universe, which you've said was so that his lens could reflect your own differences in, in writing a Christie novel. Uh, the thing that stands out to me about his portrayal is that Catchpole is so much more enamored by Poirot than his other sidekicks. How do you feel he's evolved in line with your changing perspective now that you've actually written five Poirot novels? Before I answer that question, it's interesting that you think he's more enamoured with Poirot because I think Hastings loves Poirot as well. Mm. I mean, all, all the books I've read with Poirot and Hastings, Hastings is absolutely devoted to Poirot. Um, so I, I would say that actually Catchpool, by the fifth novel I've written about, so by Hercule Poirot's Silent Night, Catchpool is completely obsessively devoted to Poirot. 
and would follow him to the ends of the earth. In the first Poirot novel I wrote, The Monogram Murders, Catchpool is much more kind of, he likes Poirot, but he's got all these issues about feeling inferior because suddenly, having been a quite successful Scotland Yard inspector on his own, suddenly he's working on this case with Poirot and Poirot has all these brilliant ideas and seems to see a way forward. And Catchpool is completely stumped. What I always thought about Hastings was, I love Hastings. He he adores Poirot and that pleases me. But he never seems to take the opportunity to learn from working with Poirot. Like he remains as useless on the detection front. And that's obviously part of the, you know, that's part of the charm and satisfaction of Hastings is that he remains exactly the same. But Hastings has already been done and brilliantly so. With Catchpool, I thought, right, I want to write a sidekick for Poirot who's a bit more like I would be if I were Poirot's sidekick. And how I would be is probably absolutely determined to learn everything I could from this genius detective. Yeah, I mean, one of the other things talking about the ABC murders is that with that evolution of the characters over the years, your run of Poirot novels is set in 1930 and 1931, uh, whereas the ABC murders is like 1935, 1936, more towards when Christie was kind of thinking about sunsetting the character. Why did you choose that place in Poirot's timeline to set your books? Because there was a very convenient gap of four years between 1928 and 1932, during which Agatha did not write any Poirot novels. So we all the publishers, the Christie family and and me, we all decided that that would be a very convenient place for my Poirot novels to slot in. And I mean, how do you think in terms of like picking a Poirot characterization to put into that timeline? What was the key evolution kind of before and after that gap? When I was asked to write the first one, I felt as though I knew Poirot really well just from reading the book so many times. I, I used to reread them every five or six years. It sounds odd, but I didn't really think, what do I want to do with his characters? I thought a lot about the plot and what his thoughts would be at every stage of the plot and his feelings would be. But I didn't really think, what do I want to do with his character? And the two reasons were, one, he's absolutely Agatha Christie's invention and character. And I did not and still don't feel that it's my place in any way to change him from what she did. Partly because there's only a point in doing continuation novels if you're continuing the character. So I saw my role as being creating the most baffling and puzzling and challenging mystery puzzles for Agatha Christie's Poirot. So so you feel as though he was like stable in his characterization in that gap. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And and he's stable in his characterization throughout Agatha's novels. He's the stable kind of superhero character. It's a bit like Mary Poppins, you know, he lands without an umbrella, but he never lands <laughs> wherever there's a mystery to be solved. And he's basically just stable Poirot and the other characters are the ones kicking off and melting down and having all the trials and tribulations. So I wanted to keep sort of that aspect. Well, I look, I love to about Poirot, but as you say, you had these storylines to insert him into and those storylines need characters. Now I have a, a, a mystery to solve here. You've mentioned in previous interviews that you were introduced to Christie's works through your father's recommendations, the body in the library, I believe. Is this relationship at all reflective of Catchpool's mother's attempts in Silent Night at desperately pulling her son into drama and suspense and mystery, even on Christmas? 
I need to know. So yes and no is the answer. So, <laughs> um, my dad bought me a copy of The Body in the Library from a book fair. And that was what got me into Agatha Christie. But actually, one of the one of the sort of one of my fondest memories of my dad is that sort of, you know, he always encouraged my mystery writing and mystery reading. So in that sense, no, like I don't I don't sort of in any way think that my dad oppressed me into being an Agatha Christie fan. I was <laughs> a dark, dark reflection, maybe. <laughs> However, my dad was also quite a formidable character who had strong views about what his children should and shouldn't do. Maybe subliminally. I mean, it's interesting. We did, my dad died in 2013, but we did until he died. My dad was kind of in charge of what happened in the family Christmas. And if anything, if anything, you know, displeased him, then he might have a bit of a sulk on Christmas Day. So actually it wasn't in my mind, but mm. maybe subliminally. Yeah. I mean, look, a huge part of the book is about just dealing with the in-laws, right? <laughs> like, what's Christmas on a on a very bad day like? And it's uh, for for Catchpole, it's murder. So you know, <laughs> yeah. So there are there are a number of characters that are technically on Poirot's side of solving the mystery in Silent Night, but kind of fall into comfortable roles of of comedic relief. There's the bumbling policeman, Inspector Mackle, the lovable terminally ill Arnold, and of course the aforementioned Cynthia. Do you think that these sorts of characters have any hope of solving mysteries with Poirot around? You can't have a Poirot novel in which somebody else solves the mystery. Mm. I mean, I, I personally think Catchpole could easily by now solve a really baffling cryptic mystery on his own steam, but he can't do that if he's in a book with Poirot. But I think the role of those characters who are kind of close and helpful is an interesting one. So one of the things that... Um, Kemper Donovan. Do you, do you know Kemper Donovan's yeah, yeah. All About Agatha podcast? So one of the things he sometimes says about characters in Agatha Christie novels is he'll say, and he's quite right, he'll say, such and such a character is the voice of wisdom in the book. That person is often structurally in the book a helper of the detective. So the sidekick is the is the the best example of this. You know, Hastings, Catchwell, they're never going to be baddies they are the helpers of Poirot well yeah and also because the idea of the voice of wisdom is is something that is is very distinct for each case because the other trope as well as it being the sidekick is that it's the the wizened old member of the family who's in the house and nobody thinks much of right and they've seen everything right yeah exactly well it's like whenever there's someone in a Poirot novel or in a, a sort of golden age detective novel who's either very old dismissed by the other characters as mad and unreliable, a child, a drunk person. You always know these are the people we've got to really pay attention to. <laughs> this true. really drunk person is about to say all the true things and we need to listen. And in fact, I do that in Silent Night. So I think there's something very Agatha Christie-ish about that motive, structurally. There's a way I could describe it if we were spoilering, which we're not. And I'm like, mm. when I had that idea, I thought, Oh, yes. If Agatha had thought of this, she for sure would have done it. Yeah. And I think that's one of the great things about c continuation novels and the authors that write them is that there is that great respect for what's come before. And it, it's so fun getting to read more of those stories. And um, Sophie, thank you so much for joining us here on Death of the Reader. It's been such a pleasure getting to read your stories, watch the film and pick your brains on it because 
it's such a such a great collection of modern mysteries in the classic style. Thank you. We will have links up on the podcast to Sophie Hanna's work, including Silent Night, the full Poirot series, and The Mystery of Mr. E. You're listening to Death of the Reader. We are talking The ABC Murders by Agatha Christie. Stick around on your Murder Mystery World Tour. You're listening to Death of the Reader. Flex and Herds here for your Murder Mystery World Tour, and we are here discussing Agatha Christie. So sorry to the tax man for skipping my Murder Mystery taxes last year, but we've done it. We've done it early this year. Getting in ahead. Well, I mean, we're catching up for last year and hopefully paying it forward with the amount of solving. There's like four murders in this book. That's so many murders. Exactly. Chapters 1 to 27 is what we're covering today. Well, up up to and including chapter 27. Herds, Mm -hmm. you have a few questions to answer today for your three points. I'll I'll do my best. Now, I I wanted to ask- There are a few key mysteries we have to solve here. Here it is with like one mystery that I haven't even thought about. I'm excited for it. I'm ready. We got to know who the actual killer is because you seem to think it, it definitely is an Alexander Bonaparte. No, it's Franklin. Come on. Okay, let's just let's just rip the bandaid off. So the thing is, right? We've got. <laughs> I guess I'll save my questions for later. <laughs> Not you shush. So here's the thing. We've got this mystery that is big and loud, and there are many many people being killed across all the different cities. And I have it in italics in the book yes. that these characters uh, need to be connected by something. The the people would not be killed for no reason. It's either because they are in the way of the murderer or because the killer has a specific goal with killing them. Those are the two options. So the connecting tissue between these characters is it's on the tin. It's the ABC murders. We are killing characters that have alliterative names. But of course, as we've kind of noticed throughout the four kills, two of those kills have been kind of a stretch. Betty, as opposed to Elizabeth, is technically accurate, but not like entirely in the spirit of the rule. And Erlford, or whatever his name is, it doesn't matter. He doesn't even have a D in his name. Like these two characters don't even follow the rule. The only character that- That's crazy. Fully follows the rule and didn't have any strange mix up in the way that they were killed, uh, Mrs. Asher and uh, Carmichael Clark. And Carmichael Clark is the character who has been killed in conjunction with the weird mix up with the letters. I've been lambasted in the past for overthinking things. So I'm going to put aside any wild speculations I have on how this letter has been constructed and manipulated. I'm just going to say it was a deliberate error to ensure that the letter would arrive a little bit late. I'm not going to push that any further than I need to. I just, I just, well, well done, Herds. (laughs) Thank you. I'm going to be very restrained today. I'm not going to say that the killer dressed up as a postman and wrote the letter himself and hand delivered it because that would be far too much effort on both the the Franklin and Christie's part (laughs) in writing this mystery. I just need you to know that Herds has been, (laughs) has been talking to me all week. He's like, I just can't figure out this deal with this damn letter. Like, how did he get it there? He, he put the wrong address on the front on purpose. (laughs) Well, that was my first thought, but I thought that would be too simple for a Christie novel. Anyway, let's move on from that before we embarrass ourselves further. I'm using a very liberal we there, but um, look. <laughs> yeah, so it says horseradish or whatever on the front in order to confuse the letter and make sure it showed up at a later time. 
so that nobody could interrupt the important murder, which is Carmichael being killed because Franklin's killed his brother. His mother is dying of cancer. And she's also warning us about Thora Gray. I haven't 100% figured out Thora Gray, but I assume the plan was that Franklin would kill his brother, take the millions of dollars, let the mom die, and then run off with Thora Gray into the sunset. And further on that, just to like put a pin in him, his psychological profile, which is the term that I'm using, also fits with what we're looking for. We say over and over again that the kind of person who would commit this crime is someone romantic and boyish and kind of silly. And Franklin fits all of that. And so the real like solution is that the other murders are a smoke screen to cover up the single strand of smoke that is the death of Carmichael Clark. I love it. That sounds excellent to it's me. Great. I think that's a it's a very robust theory. Thank you. I feel good about it. And I'm I'm very <laughs> I'm excited uh, for you to pleased that it. my confidence in your ability has oh, no. has been justified. What um, I would like but, to know but, the actual yes. challenge for your extra point oh, today no. is I need you to tell me how and why Alexander Bonaparte Cust oh, is God. involved in all of this. Oh, man, there's so much stuff floating around. There's lots of talk of the war and China and all these other things. So I, I guess the place to start for me is that apparently Franklin must have a list of names. He's probably looked in like the English word dictionary for names or whatever they have over there. And he's found all of the characters that have alliterative names and he's found someone with ABC as their name. And he said, right, that character seems like a good scapegoat. So he has, let's say, contracted this poor war veteran who needs the work to sell silk stockings. And essentially these stockings that we're finding around the place are from Alexander selling them or leaving them at all the different murder locations. And that's done with the purpose of of framing him, essentially, if we want to. I think the main one is we have the ABC rail guides. Clearly, we're framing ABC Alexander Bonaparte cast pretty, pretty obviously. That's, but letters and alliteration aside, why go for cast? Why go with the alliterative game? What, what is it about? Franklin or what is it about Cust that has put us on this path in particular? There's a couple of answers you could give here that could be correct. And if you say the last one of them that Poirot mentions in this book, Herds, you can have all of my points for free for the rest of the year. Oh my God. <laughs> I just <laughs> I just need to know if the clues in this book line up. I don't know. Okay? I don't know if they do. I look I don't I'll, think I'll, they I'll, do. I'll That's have... why I'm being so <laughs> audacious. Look, I would love to get all of these all these points. Oh, good Lord. Because what do we know about him? He's a war veteran. It's got to be something to do with the war, right? According to this scene where he sits down with a newspaper, they're putting lots of emphasis on the fact that Cuss was like unhinged during the war. That's something that the police keep saying is like, it's a, they're a lunatic, crazy madman who'd kill all these people. But I don't know if it's like they both fought in the war. Or something. No, I think that's a pretty respectable answer. All right. Because, like, I feel like the novel isn't really leaning on specific events and places and people. There's more of a kind of broad approach that we're taking here. But maybe I'm wrong. Maybe there's some secret backstory here that I'm missing. But yeah, I mean, listen, as I said, there are definitely a few answers you could give that would be true in this situation. And I think as you read the end of the novel, you'll spot them and go, oh, that. 
Yeah, but not in a way that makes them feel <laughs> eminently solvable. Yeah, I don't know. Because, like, I, the thing is, I could make a leap here and say, well, actually, Cust was unhinged in the war because he killed someone. He killed Carmichael, Carmichael's father, but I wouldn't really know how to support that. That would be, like, the trope that I could leap at, but I don't know that I have solid evidence. In the sense that you think he is going to end up believing the story that he's been framed for himself. I mean- I was going to say more so just because the police are looking for a madman. So to sum it all up, Herds, you're picking Franklin because he's a boyish little scamp who wants yeah, to run off he's just having with a good Thora Gray. With all his millions from his with, brother. With all his millions. And it's a smokescreen. Uh, Carmichael Clark was the pebble on the beach hidden away. And it was it was all done in order to frame a madman who's probably done something else that I can't quite figure out. And that's that's where we're at, <laughs> I guess. Oh, excellent. And the letter and the letter just was spelled wrong. <laughs> the linchpin in the theory. One final question oh, before, no. before we go, Herds. Yeah? How can Poirot prove this? How can he prove this? That is a great question. Because I feel like it has to be this third letter. It's too important to be, like, forgotten about. It mentions that there's a postmark on it that indicates that it was sent from Putney, which is in or near London. I'm not familiar with English geography, I'll be honest. Maybe they can pin him as like being in London at the time the letter was sent, but that's a bit of a stretch. I don't know, but I assume it'll be some horrible contradiction. Hurts. Thank you for joining me for this episode on the ABC Murders by Agatha Christie. Mm, it was excellent. We'll be back next week to cover all the way to the end of the book here on your Murder Mystery World Tour. This is Death of the Reader. You're listening to 2SER 107.3. Catch you around.